You are listening to History Man, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's podcast, we have with us Bill Seegers from Kellytown, outside of Hartsville, South Carolina, talking about the churches in South Carolina burned during the American Revolution. So welcome, Bill. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you coming over. You and I met at the Francis Marion Symposium that occurred just a, a week or so ago. That particular symposium is every year. It's an every annual year. event. And they bring in historians from all over South Carolina and talk about a wide number of topics. And one of those topics this year that, that they highlighted was uh, your book. Mm-hmm. And we're excited to hear about your work. And thank you for allowing us to sit in with you. Good, good. Glad to. But tell us how this happened. Eric, when I started this project back in 2003, a book was the furthest thing from my mind. I had no intentions on writing a book, particularly about uh, churches that were burned. Right. Because very often there's nothing left of them. So um, my intent was to find 185 pre-Civil War churches still in existence of South Carolina. So I started traveling the roads, had a little book that told me basically where they were. So I started traveling the roads of South Carolina trying to find them. And what is Uh, your background, Phil? My my background, I'm a contractor, okay, a, a builder. And I'm glad you asked that because as I find these churches, I'm looking at them from a builder's point of view. How were they built? Who built them? How much did they cost to build? Who the architect was? I'm more interested in that than I am who the preachers were. Sure. Who gave the land? All that's very important, but a lot of that is written in existing church history books about a particular church. But the building itself, was it slash sawn timber? Was it? Yeah, I was going to ask you, how deep in the weeds did you get oh, on that? What kind uh, of wood? Yeah, uh, yeah. It, um, yeah I, I, I'm happiest in the attic is of, that right? of an early 1800 church. I see. To know that I'm touching timbers that very few people have touched since they were put there sure. in the late 1700s or early 1800s. But very few people want to go in the attic or under the church. Sure. Um, and so that's what we talk about in the book. We talk about the way the brick are laid in these particular Anglican churches. And so it, it's a different slant on history than just your normal names and places. It's why things are done the way they're done. And so anyway, after you know, trying to find these 185 churches, then I started seeing other churches that were equally as pretty equally as interesting and so i started including some that were built after 1865 and even now churches i'm finding that were built in in the early 1900s are very unique and very pretty so as a result of this some probably close to 40,000 miles traveling south carolina i've recorded either through photographs and or documentation over 850 churches in south carolina unfortunately Ten of those churches aren't here anymore. Is that right? Yes. They, they, they've burned. Tornado got one. A uh, car ran through one. And so we're losing a little less than one a year. Notable church buildings. Define notable. Um, notable. They're either very pretty architecturally. There's something interesting about the history of them. How were they built? Who built them? We find very often in written records that the members built the church. Okay. Churches that were built in 1834, I know of one 
It costs $1,150, which is still functioning today as a church. Um, well, they got their money back on that they one. They did. That was a good investment for them when it was built in 1834. Of course, it's, it's sad to see any church burn. Sure. I, I'm also a volunteer fireman. And I've worked a church fire, and you just don't suppose to see crosses glowing red. Right. So it's yeah, I'm I'm proud that I have pictures of a lot of those that are gone. Right. I feel sure there's other pictures out there, other photographs, but probably not along with the research that I've done on these particular buildings that have that have lost. To build a church, how has that changed from the 1700s? to the 1800s to the 1900s. Mm, What are things that stick out from a 1700s church that are different than from an 1800s church that are different from a 1900s church? Is there that much of a difference? Yeah, yeah, there is, Eric. And, And I guess the best example that I can give of that is one that I'm very familiar with that was built in 1846. Okay. It's a solid brick building. It functioned very well for a long, 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 long time. But the congregation wanted the building to be more comfortable, so they introduced heating and air conditioning to it. And in order for it to be economically feasible to do that, they added insulation. Okay. And they immediately started having problems with paint coming off the walls, moisture, buildup, mildew. Just the building wasn't very healthy. It was built to breathe. And with the introduction of heating and cooling, for the purpose of comfort, it started having problems. Now, there's there's ways to counteract those problems, and that's hopefully what they're in the process of doing now. Humidity control. So, you know, these buildings were built very loosely, okay. strong, but loosely, and so they were allowed to breathe. The air flowed in, the air flowed out. It controlled, self-controlling moisture, if you will. Different products, depending on what side of the state you're on? Oh, yeah, by all means. Um, And also, depending on how much money you have. Okay. All right. So, like down in Charleston, you had some of the older congregations built out of seashells and some sort of... Um, Tabby construction. Okay. Where where you mix um, crushed oyster shells, mix it with clay, and make... Basically, you pour walls. Instead of concrete walls, you would pour walls of this tabby construction. If you didn't have a lot, a lot of money and you lived in the back country, okay. you had plenty of trees. I see. So you built wooden church buildings. Out of a particular type of wood? Mo- most of it was pine. Okay. Yeah. Um, obviously, we had some good virgin longleaf pine at that time. And Is there a difference in the different types of pine? Oh, yes. Yeah. In the building product? Yeah. yeah. Tell, me, tell me what the difference would <laughs> be. Okay. That's, that's another whole topic in itself. I don't want to get too far in there, okay. but it, it does interest me. And I'm sure that the you know when you're looking at it from a historical perspective and you have this particular eye mm-hmm. on these buildings, what do you, I, I would love for our listeners to understand that yeah. eye a little bit. Well, longleaf pine, and the best indicator of a longleaf pine tree is it has a much slicker bark and the needles are long opposed to our pine trees of today which are species by the name of loblolly and slash that's got a rough bark and a very short needle it grows extremely fast longleaf pine grows extremely slow now the difference that makes is a longleaf pine in its slow growth the rings are real tight in the tree they're real close together the resin saps from the from the winter growth into the summer growth and makes the whole tree strong unlike a loblolly pine which can grow to maturity lumber wise in 
15 to 18 to 20 years. It'll take 40 to 50 to 60 years for a longleaf pine, but it's much more stable because the growth is much slower. It's, it's unfortunate, Eric, but today's builders, we have to deal with slash loblolly and spruce pine. And I mean, you, you lay a two before out in the sun over the course of a day and it begins to warp just because it's so unstable. But nobody wants to wait till a longleaf pine tree grows to harvest it. That's yes. maturity. So you're saying some of these backcountry churches from the 1700s were built with the longleaf pine. Mm -hmm. It's a very solid it's, pine. It's, it's a very dense pine. Very it, dense. It's still a soft yes. wood. It's in the soft wood family. Okay. But the wood is very dense I due see. to the tightness of the grains. So how did they join the joist? Where your main seals, your main structural members would be hand hewn. Wow. And then mortise and tenons would be cut, tenon on the joist and a, um, a mortise on the seal. And they would put that mortise and tenon together, drill a hole through that, whittle a peg and drive a peg into those two timbers to join them together. All of these timbers were numbered. Okay. I can go up under a building or in the attic and look for carpenter marks and I'll find carpenter marks put in by what they were using, what they had in their hand when they were hewing these timbers is a hammer and a chisel and they're all Roman numerals. So because some of these people that were getting this, converting the trees to timbers could be doing that this year for a building that's going to be built two or three years from now. Okay. They were planning ahead. So everything was numbered. And when the head carpenter needed a certain timber, he would call out for a certain number and it would come forward. It had a place to go. How whether it be a floor joist or a rafter or a ceiling joist. Because um, it, was, it was a long process and people did it all themselves as a community. They were building their church. They were proud of their church. Sure. So they wanted it to look extra good. And really we could do about everything except windows. We could not make glass, we could make brick, we could um, forge nails, do all the wood. We, we, just, we just couldn't make glass. So if you had glass in your windows, it was number one clear glass and it had to be bought from somewhere else. Okay. Buying something takes money. For our listeners, uh, when you go across South Carolina, many of these communities across South Carolina really grew out of that church grouping uh you had whole communities uh rocky creek for instance uh the coventers they came from the ulster plantations in in ireland came specifically here and built their community yeah. union county the name union was because of the church they brought the community together and that church became the unifying force for that county Along the lines of what we were just talking about with the wooden churches, and we talk about this in the book, the Anglican churches in South Carolina were typically made of brick. Now, it wasn't just because they were Anglican, but they were made of brick, more expensive, took more time, took more effort. They were made of brick because the tax dollars paid for the Anglican church. Well, the tax dollars didn't pay for the Scotch-Irish churches? <laughs> no, sir. No, they, sir. They didn't pay for the Huguenot churches? No, sir. Therein lies the problem. Um, therein lies, I think, a lot of the American Revolution. 
Church Act of 1706 established the Anglican Church as the Church of South Carolina. It also said that you could have any religion that you wanted, you could worship in any fashion that you wanted to worship, but your building could not be called a church. It was a meeting house. Furthermore, you were responsible to build your own meeting house because there was only one church and that church was supported and funded by tax dollars. The Anglican Vestry, which was a typically a group of men, and pretty much solely a group of men, that governed the church and also governed the parish. South Carolina ended up with 21 parishes, and each one of them had a parish church, which was the center, kind of like the courthouse, if you will, of today. So your vestry men were in charge of the church and in charge of the parish. Collection of taxes, where that money was spent, so those dollars also went towards support of and building of the church. So most of the Anglican churches in South Carolina during the American Revolution were brick construction. And the Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic, Presbyterian, they were left to pay the taxes and also build their own church. So unless you paid the taxes, the Anglican church wouldn't recognize marriages? Yeah, because again, the Anglican church was the governing body I see. Of, of that parish, of were, that county. Were the taxes separate and apart from the British government? Some of those dollars went back to the British government also. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, and again, I, I don't know that I would be an expert towards where, sure. where all these dollars sure. went, but that was the biggest rub, particularly for the Presbyterians, Scotch-Irish. Okay. They came to the colonies to get away from exactly what they were finding here. I see, I see. Um, and so, yeah, they said, this is the land of freedom of religion. Yeah, we'll, we'll come there. But they get here and find out they're still paying taxes for something they're not getting a benefit of. So how many families uh, supported these various churches? Obviously, depending on the size of the parish, but typically each parish would have a parish church, one parish church. From there, they may have chapel of ease, Particularly in Berkeley County, it was St. John's, which was Biggins, what we commonly know of as Biggins now. They had about four different Chapel of Eases. And those Chapel of Eases, one of them is still there, Strawberry Chapel is still there in Berkeley County. And it was built for the convenience of the people in that area. Why should those eight or ten families make the long trip back to Biggins Creek to go to the main church will build us a chapel here and let the preacher come to us I see. thus the word it was easier for them so they were called chapel of eases I see. now how many families they all depended on the population most of your parishes well your first 10 parishes were right along the coast st john's st phillips uh, christ church those 10 parishes right along the coast their boundaries went all the way inland, all the way in through South Carolina, or the Carolinas at that time. As the population grew, they needed more churches. And so then St. Mark's was established, uh, St. David's here in Sherall, in the neighborhood up in Chesterfield County. That was the last parish to be established. So what started out as 10 parishes ended up as 21 parishes in the 
geographical area. So again, it's hard to say how many families just because of the size of, of the land. Even there in Charleston, what was St. Philip's Parish, the first parish, was divided into St. Michael's I see. and St. Philip's. So what were the denominations of the churches that were burned? <clears throat> Most of them, there were, uh, there were 13 churches that we know of, and we feel sure that 13 is the correct number. We actually think, and I say we, Jim Neal and I did research on this, and no, none of these were any secrets. We didn't find anything. It's just that this is the only book that we know of that all 13 of them are talked about collectively sure. as, as one group. We did have some question on one, or I had some questions on two, but one, a Quaker church over in Camden, we think was burned, okay. but there's absolutely no written record of a Quaker church being burned, even though we do know that all of Camden was burned when, uh, when the British left. So of that 13, there were six Anglican, five Presbyterian, and two Congregationalist denominations. And those Congregationalists eventually went on to be Presbyterians. They all had about the same faith. The Anglicans and the Presbyterians were right there neck and neck mm -hmm. as far as uh, the the number burned of these. The number burned. The 13, 13 is the number burned. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're talking between what year? Um, we're talking between 1779 and 1782. Okay, so in those three years, yeah. 13 churches were burned, mm -hmm. and it was about half and half. So I guess Pretty the much. question yeah. is, why were they burned? Okay, all right, now. That, that's where the big difference comes. I see. I think Presbyterian churches were singled out. They were singled out for a completely different reason than the Anglican churches were burned. The Presbyterian churches were burned primarily because the preachers preached from the pulpit in support of the patriots and against the British. I see. A number of churches, a goodly number of those churches, were actually singled out to be burned to set an example for the others around. I know when we were at the symposium the other day, the question came up about the movie, The Patriot, mm -hmm. where they actually, in the movie, they burned people inside of the church. There was some uh, discussion about that at that symposium. Were there any churches where people were burned inside the church? Eric, we, we didn't find any record of that. Okay. Um, even as mean as some of these soldiers may have been in burning the churches, we, we didn't find any record of in any written history that people were, were killed in the, in the churches. Waxhaw Church up Lancaster County Way. After Beaufort's massacre, all of the patriots that were wounded were taken into Waxhaw Presbyterian Church for medical attention. When Bannister Tarleton um, discovered that they had done that, that the, the congregation had done that to help the patriots, he and his men went and physically removed all of the patients and set the church on fire. So you ask about people and being burned in, that's the only closest that I know of that people and churches are even mentioned in the same conversation. And in that case, he physically removed the patients and burned the church just because they were aiding and helping the wounded patriots. Okay. Of the churches burned, the mm -hmm. 13, is there a particular location or a region that these were, that, that they occurred at? Yes, the, the majority of them, particularly the Anglican churches, were along mm -hmm. the coastal region. Okay. You get on up into the back country and there were 
six of those that were burned would in now what would be Sumter County, Kershaw County, Williamsburg, Chesterfield, and Lancaster County. I see. So we, we did get some burning on up into the back country, as we'll okay. call it at this time. Most of those, of those six that were burned in the back country, five of them were Presbyterian. One was an Anglican church that okay. was burned in the back country over in Sumter County. So you said there was a difference between the Presbyterian churches and the reason they were burned and, and the Anglican churches. What, why were okay. the Anglican uh, churches burned? Well, yeah, I guess for several reasons. Um, two Anglican churches that were burned that I know for sure of, they had ammunition stored in them, gunpowder. I see. Ammunition. Well, they were brick churches, right? They were brick churches. They were brick fortresses, right? basically. That would make sense. And so any material that was put in those churches would just be automatically consumed once they were set afire. The two that were burned, one was Biggins Church at St. John's Parish outside of Monk's Corner. Okay. When the British were being run out of Monk's Corner, they were retreating to the, they thought, the safety of Charleston. They very quickly determined that they had too much weight. They, they couldn't, could not physically take all the ammunition that they had. So they put it in the church, and the British set the church on fire just because it would not fall into the Patriots' hands. Right. They right. wanted to get rid of the ammunition, lighten their load, so they could run faster or march faster. Makes to, sense. To Charleston, <laughs> yeah. The other one um, that a very similar thing happened is Sheldon. Um, down in, in Beaufort County, and probably one of the most iconic church remnants, or re recognizable re building. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Is Sheldon there at Sheldon? And your listeners need to kind of remember too that the Revolutionary War was probably our first civil war. Not everybody was in favor of leaving the British rule. There were a good many of the colonialists that liked the comfort of that. They didn't want to branch out and start all over. And so, yes, you very often had neighbor against neighbor in the, in the American Revolutionary War. So there was a situation down in, in Beaufort County to where William Bull, who, who once was a governor of South Carolina, had, we'll say, acquired some ammunition, possibly from the British, for the Patriot cause. And so to keep it safe, he put it in Sheldon Church. Um, unfortunately, he had a nemist by the name of Andrew DeVoe okay. that was a, an adjoining landowner that they just didn't quite see eye to eye on a lot of things and DeVoe was a, was a loyalist. So in order to gain some favor with the British when they came through, um, he let it be known that he knew where some ammunition was and it was stored in Sheldon. Sheldon Church burns. Now, we don't know who lit the match, Eric. We don't know whether the British burned it or whether the Loyalists burned it, whether DeVoe burned it, or who burned it. But shortly after that exchange of information, the church burned. And was never rebuilt. Yes, it was. It was yeah, rebuilt. Yeah, okay. yeah it, it was re rebuilt. And really, up until just recently, we thought it was burned again by Sherman's troops, but it was, it, it was rebuilt, it was reused, but it never really functioned as a strong church again, okay. fell into disrepair. And shortly after the Civil War, um, most of the material that had been used to put back on it was taken off of the building to be used in building, building houses. It kind of segues into my next question is, the burning of these churches, these 13 churches, 
How did that affect the communities? Were they able to re- rebound from this, or what happened? Yeah, um, most all the churches were were rebuilt okay. in, in some fashion or another. All of the churches continued having services immediately. They, immediately. They re- immediately. Okay. Um, they, they realized the strength of their faith. So yes, they turned back to the Lord for strength to continue. They may have been meeting in a bushy arbor. Um, what is a bushy arbor? Bushy arbor is basically just a little lean-to shed okay. that right. you would put up very quickly and temporarily just to have a place to go under to, to meet. They may have met at houses. I don't know, but they immediately went back to worshiping their faith, whether it be Anglican or whether it be um, Presbyterian. Not until after the British left Charleston in 1782 the war subsequently ended shortly after that, did things begin to get back to normal, and when they did, then churches were rebuilt. The other reason, Eric, that Anglican churches were burned, and again, Anglican church was the British church, if you will. Sure. It, it was built with British money, basically, and so very often people ask, said, well, why, why did the British burn their own church? Well, we know of two situations with the ammunition, but other, the other Anglican churches, with the exception of one, and we'll talk about that, was burned by the British as they retreated or as they were run out of either whether it be Charleston or whether it be Georgetown. Mm-hmm. They had used, for instance, Prince George Winyah then in downtown Georgetown. Winyah Bay. Yeah. They, okay. they had used the Anglican church there in Georgetown as their headquarters. They stabled horses in the church. They conducted business in the church. When you talk about quartering soldiers, the churches were not uh, not off limits. They were no, quartering no, 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 horses right. and soldiers. Yeah. That one, um, Christ Church, okay. same way, which is out Mount Pleasant Way. Both of them were used to as headquarters. I see. So when they were run out of these churches by the Patriots and run out of town, they were mad. They were upset. They realized they had been defeated, and they didn't like that. So they lashed out and burnt the church that they just left, you know, just to do as much destruction as, as they could do. And you ask about rebuilding. Prince George Winyah, um, there in downtown Georgetown, is the only church in South Carolina that did, in fact, see flames and is in continuous use today. I see. All the rest of the, the other 12 churches that were burned, where they worship now, if there's a church there, is a replacement church but the four walls of Prince George did in fact see flames and it has continued to be used. Of course, they added on to it between um, 84, I think they started, and ended up in 1822 when they finished that degree of renovation and additions. So there were six burned, yeah. and of those six, only one is still in use. It's still in use. The, the building that the actually building saw itself, flames. The four walls yeah. of that... Yeah. of that building yeah. okay well, that's interesting the um, others may be around it's yeah. just a whole different yeah. building um like, like sheldon i mean sure. this is still there biggins is still there christ church is still there they don't have regular services in it okay now they they, they have another I, another I building now they, they may have some special services but yeah those those masonry walls even at christ church that mm-hmm. are standing today did see flames uh when we think about church burnings now more of a criminal offense uh, rather than an act of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but were any of these criminal offenses? So we're not interested in suspects being caught and no, hung. No. Uh, you, you didn't find anything along those <coughs> no, lines? No, nor did we find any, any indication that the, the British leaders in charge told underlings to go out and burn churches. I see. Now, when I say the, the leaders in charge, we're talking about Cornwallis, the, the head man. Did he tell Tarleton, did he tell Weems, did he tell uh, Turnbull to go out and burn churches? don't see any record of that. Now, once they got out in the field, who knows what a soldier will do. We do know that when Weems burned uh, Indian Town Presbyterian in Williamsburg, in, yeah, Williamsburg County, he, he himself deemed it a sedition shop. In other words, they were against the crown. He dealt with it by burning the church. Rocky Creek, when, when William Martin found out that Waxhaw had been burned, he preached from the pulpit the next Sunday. Preached a very fiery sermon. Very fiery. Got them all fired yep. up. Oh, yeah. And these are old-time Scotch-Irish, mm-hmm. Ulster Scots. That's right. They had just come off the boat a few years ago, a few That's years right. before, so they had an understanding of what was going on. So when he, he made that sermon, he really got them fired up. So when they were told to go and dispense the congregation, you know, would break them up, some of the British took that to mean burn the church. So... They burnt the church, they burnt William Martin's house, took William Martin captive, and he stayed in prison for the rest of the war, did come back to preach. But again, I think, Eric, that it was a lot of foot soldiers that actually did this. Did Bannister Tarleton tell them to do that? I think in his case, he probably did. Cornwallis told him on a number of occasions, do not make these people mad. You're not doing the British any favors and he was bloody tarleton he, he, he yep. was young yep. and impetuous that's right he? but no as far as any corrective action nobody was searching for these people who lit the match bill it's a fascinating book good and uh and uh, i could sit here and talk to you for for hours on this <laughs> stuff how would they find your book how would they get a hold of it there are some local bookstores but you can also am- order it off of amazon and the the title of the book is Churches in South Carolina Burned During the American Revolution, A Pictorial Guide. And uh, you co-authored this with uh, uh, a man by the name of Jim 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 Neal. Neal, yes. It is a a fascinating history of South Carolina, one that uh, when you go to a history book section in the bookstore, you see these fine pieces of work, and sometimes it's really hard to tie in your senses of of what you see around you now to what happened 240 years ago. What a fascinating work you have that that people can tangibly look at these these ruins, these areas and go, that's I know exactly what happened there. And you have allowed them to do that in your book. So thank you so much. Well, the other thing that I've tried to focus on, Eric, is exactly where these buildings are. I want people to go see them. Right. We've got accurate addresses. We've got GPS coordinates. You can plug that into your device, and it'll put you at the front door of the church. Bill, let me ask you this. What does liberty mean to you? Liberty means the the freedom, the right to be able to exercise my thoughts, the privilege to be able to exercise my thoughts and to express my thoughts. Yes, I need to know, and people need to know that exercising that also has its consequences, but at least we have the right to do that. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Appreciate it.